Well, it is New Year's Day, New Year, a day after New Year's Day, I guess, but still New Year's. Happy New Year's to everyone. It is only the second day of the new year, and hopefully nothing too crazy has happened to ruin your year yet. If it has, I'm sorry, but hopefully that's not the case for most of us at least. Hopefully you're still going with your Bible reading plan if you started one of those, but let me say that if you are already off track on day two, Jesus still loves you and it is okay. I would encourage you to just pick that thing back up. It's only day two. You're not too far behind yet, but uh, it is a good thing to do to read the Bible. So if you're off track, pick it up, read it again. And we're actually going to do that right now. We're going to read the Bible together because it's good for us. It's helpful. helps us to see who God is. And just like we do every week, it's a new year, but it's the same need that we have. We need God's grace, especially during this time as we look to his word. And so if you would, let's pray one more time together. Father, we do acknowledge that any blessings that we have, any gifts, any grace, even the life that we have to celebrate the beginning of a new year, all of that is attributed to your kind providence in our lives and your mercy in our lives. So God, we thank you for giving us a new year, for giving us another Sunday like this where we can gather together and we can celebrate the good news of Jesus. We can encourage one another. We can be built up in the faith. We pray that you would do those things today. Continue doing them in this service. Build us up. Save us. Sanctify us. Make us more like Christ. Help us to trust him more. Fill us with hope in all the best ways today and in, in you. We pray that you would help us this morning to see you as you are faithful and good and kind and for us. We pray that you would help me now as I attempt to preach your word and all of us as we attempt to listen to it and to apply it rightly. We pray that you would give us all the grace we need to do that well today. Help us to delight in your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we've already talked about, we have just entered a new year, and even though New Year's Day is just uh, another day, it's also a unique time that a lot of us set aside for a number of different things, such as New Year's resolutions. You hear it all the time, New Year, New You, right? We plan to exercise more, lose weight, get a better job, or even just get a job. We plan to do something like learn a new hobby, learn to cook, be on our phones less, uh, read more, keep the kids alive, make better grades in school, be more present with people. The list goes on. New Year is also a good opportunity for things like reflection and anticipation. So we look back on the previous year, we put little recap videos on social media and things of that nature to celebrate the year that we had. Maybe we take some time, maybe you did this, you took some time at the end of the year a few days ago to reflect on all the things you have to be thankful for. And we look forward to the next year. We think next year I'm going to get a job that I like. I'm going to meet someone finally. I'm going to celebrate 20 years of marriage. I'm going to finally take a fun vacation. My health is going to be good. I'm going to have deep relationships. Maybe you're really into sports and you think this is the year that my sports team is finally going to get over the hump. They're going to win. This is the year I'm going to finally have a child. My kids are finally going to get along with each other this year. My middle child is going to stop rolling his eyes at me all the time, right? My, uh, my prodigal child is going to come home this year. Again, the list goes on. 
But those usually aren't the only thoughts that we have at the end of the year. A lot of times, our times of reflection aren't only positive. For you, last year might have sounded, or at least included, something like this. I lost my job. I lost my marriage. I lost a close friend. I was sick. I had a major setback. God didn't answer my prayers. And maybe as you've looked toward this new year, you've, you have hopes and dreams, but you're also anticipating some hard things too. You're thinking a new year means more disappointment. More unanswered prayers, more sickness, more pain, more relationship troubles, more unemployment, more struggles to get pregnant, more pandemic. First, if you have thoughts like that about the new year, you're not alone. We do live in a fallen, sinful world that's filled with lots of good and also lots of bad. Some years are better than others, but every year has good and it has bad and What I want us to think about this morning from God's word is this. What do we do when life is hard? In seasons of suffering and difficulty, where should we turn? I do intend for this to be a very encouraging sermon, but I want you to tune in the entire time. And I think that it will be very encouraging for us. As we think about some of these things, though, we're going to be looking at Lamentations 3. So if you're not already turned there, if you have a way to turn there, then Start making your way. Lamentations 3, 1 through 24. And you can follow along as I read these 24 verses together for us. This is God's word. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wonderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new, Every morning, 
Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. The chapter starts by saying, I am the man who has seen affliction. Affliction is a relative term. All of us have experienced some type of affliction in our lives, some degree of it. And because of sin, affliction is in our future in some form or fashion as well. So as we look at this passage, the way I want to break down our time together in God's word is by asking three questions. And these questions are all connected, but three questions that I want us to think about together. Number one, how should we speak when we are afflicted? How should we speak when we're afflicted? We don't know who for sure wrote this chapter or this book of Lamentations. The most likely person is the prophet Jeremiah writing in the overall context of the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem taken over, it's been destroyed. It's not like it once was. Things are very hard in a lot of ways as the passage and as the text makes clear. Whoever the author for sure is, other than God, of course, whoever, whichever man person wrote this. It's a man who has experienced a lot of loss. He's experienced hopelessness. He's experienced shame. He's endured suffering. And in that way, he's relatable, whoever he is, to most of us, if not all of us. And what we have here in his words is a model for how to speak in times of affliction. So the book of Lamentations is called Lamentations because it's a book of laments. One author, he talks about lament in this way. He says, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's not only how Christians grieve, it's the way Christians praise God through their sorrows. Lament is a pathway to praise when life gets hard. Lament enters the complicated space of deep disappointment and lingering hurt, and it boldly reaffirms the trustworthiness of God. It's a helpful and life-giving language that transforms our pains into platforms for praise instead of pits of despair. He goes on briefly. He says, unfortunately, I don't know how many contemporary Christians who know how to lament. He says, our celebratory singing, while not wrong, doesn't usually lead us through our sorrows. It just drowns out the struggles with invitations to rejoice. But embracing joy without wrestling with tough questions can feel incomplete, even fake. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this lament together. We're going to spend a few moments thinking about how to speak when life is hard. How should we talk to God? How should we talk to one another? God does not expect us to only ever be silent in our affliction. He doesn't expect us to keep all of our questions and our pain and our hurt bottled up inside. The book of Lamentations and so many of the Psalms, I think, attest to this, according, uh, including other portions of God's word. The same author really briefly goes on to say this, lament is how people talk to God and one another when pain or indifference tempts them to be silent. Lament could be a way to end our silence. So we don't always only ever want to keep silent in our pain, but when we speak, if we're going to speak when we're in these kinds of seasons of affliction, then How should we speak? What should it sound like? We don't want to be disrespectful or irreverent or prideful. We want to be accurate about God's character. We want to be honest about our thoughts and our feelings. So what does that look like? 
Verse 1, again, we see this man speaks about his reality as he sees it. He's not in denial. He recognizes his pain and suffering of his circumstances. He says in verse 1, I'm the man who has seen affliction. I'm not doing so hot. And then he essentially spends 18 verses being really honest about what he's experiencing and what he's feeling. He says brutally honest things like, we're going to quickly highlight some of these. Verse 2, I dwell in the darkness without any light. Verse 3, God is against me. Verse 7, I feel like I'm in prison, chained to the wall. Verse 8, my prayers aren't answered. Verse 9, I'm unsuccessful. I can't get where I want to go. He's so honest about the depths of his pain and how he's interpreting it, at least in one sense. A few more here. Verse 13, physically, I've been beaten down. Verse 14, personally, I'm a joke. I'm teased. My reputation is ruined. Verse 15, emotionally, I'm bitter. I'm upset. I'm frustrated. I'm jaded. I'm filled with sorrow. Then two more here. Verse 17, I don't even remember what it's like to be happy. I don't even know what that's like. Someone says, what's happiness? I don't know. Couldn't tell you. Verse 18, I'm ready to give up whatever hope I had in the Lord is long gone. This is heavy stuff. And one thing that we should take from this passage is that it is okay and it is even good to be honest when it comes to our affliction. It's a good thing to be honest with brothers and sisters in the church about your affliction. If you can't do that there, where are you going to be able to do it? It's good to be honest with God and with each other. If we are thinking something, if we're feeling something, it's not good for us to deny it or to lie about it. The lament has this guy feeling really vulnerable, being really vulnerable about how he has no happiness. He's got no hurt. He has no heart, no will to live. He is, he is undone, and he's very clear about it. He's hurting. He's discouraged, to say the least. At least in this moment, he has given up on prayer. He's given up on God. And he doesn't just ignore all those things in order to sound more spiritual, right, or more godly or more sanctified. He doesn't keep all that negative stuff inside in order to stick with things like, I'm too blessed to be stressed, or I'm doing better than I deserve. And of course, saying those things, uh, they're not bad things to say. If they're true, then we can say those. We can believe those. Is he doing better than he deserves? Well, we do deserve hell, so yes, he's doing better than he deserves, but maybe he's allowed to say some other things too. Those things might be true, but the author here, he, uh, uh, and the author here, he does get to some glorious truths later on in the passage, which we'll get to later, some Romans 8.28 type stuff that we read earlier. He does get there, but he doesn't start there. In verses 1 through 18, he's not there yet, or at least that's not his focus yet. Life is hard, and navigating life in times of suffering can be especially hard, And in times of affliction, I think we see here that it is good to be honest about life. When someone asks you how how you're doing, it is okay to say, not well. It's okay to admit when you're lacking faith in the Lord. Is it good to lack faith in the Lord? No, we're called to have faith in the Lord. Is it okay to admit when you're lacking faith? Yes. It's okay to admit that you haven't prayed in a week because you don't see the point in it. Is prayerlessness sinful? Yes. God tells us to pray without ceasing. But you know what's also a sin? 
lying about praying when you actually haven't pray, prayed, right? Like we, we don't want to compound our sin. If we are angry or we're numb or we're doubting or we're hopeless, let's be honest. God gives us freedom. I, I hope that even already you're feeling, you're experiencing a sense of freedom when it comes to this passage. Freedom to speak honestly. Freedom to admit things that you don't know how other people are going to take. I'm afraid to say this because they might not think I'm a Christian. This guy doesn't sound like he has a lot of faith in God. What are people going to think? I hope you feel some freedom this morning to speak honestly about your affliction, about life, about things that you are enduring. You've heard this kind of thing before, but it's like if you have cancer but choose to deny the reality of that cancer, you're not going to get the help you need. If your child is a terror but you deny it, you're not going to find the help that you need for you or your child. So really when it boils down to it, how should we speak when we're afflicted? We should be honest. We should feel freedom to be honest in the struggle, in the suffering, in the affliction. Let's not keep things bottled up. Let's be people who celebrate the good things and we're clear about the good things, but also who communicate honestly about the hard things. If we're doubting, for instance, let's admit it and let's pray for greater faith in Christ. If we're fearful, let's admit it and pray for the courage of the Lord. If we're feeling weak, let's admit it and pray for strength in the, uh, pray for greater hope in the Lord. And as we speak, as we lament, let's also recognize God's role in it, or at least what we perceive to be God's role in it. That's what we're going to be looking at next. The author talks a lot about God in this passage, and so we want to consider this question for number two. Where is God during times of affliction? Where's God during times of affliction? This is a question that most, if not all of us, have asked at some point or another. Where is God? Where is he? What's he doing? What's he up to? And as we see here in this passage, here are uh, some of the things that this guy seems to be saying. Seems to be saying things like, God is responsible for my affliction. He's the one in control. He's the one doing this to me. We've already seen it over and over in this passage. He says things like, he broke me. He imprisoned me. He's a lion in hiding waiting to attack me. He's against me. He set me as his target. He's humiliated me. He's filled me with bitterness. The author's really clear about his, at least part of his opinion about God. He believes that God is right in the middle of his affliction. He's doing all of these things. You can sense that his overall feeling in verses 1 through 18 is something like, God is done with me, and so maybe I'm done with him. God doesn't care about me. I've forgotten what happiness is, and God has forgotten me. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you've had some of those kinds of thoughts before. The author here, he does seem to recognize God's sovereignty and providence over all things, He seems to believe, Psalm 115.3, that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He seems to know that. He believes, it seems, the truth of Ephesians 1.11, about how God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He gives God credit 
for every ounce of his affliction. That belief is all over this passage. And so where is God during affliction? He's right in the middle of it. He's over it in his goodness and in his wisdom. He is in control of it. He's in charge of it. He's orchestrating it. So the words that we see here from our author are, they're understandable. In in some ways, they're pretty, seems like they're theologically accurate part, part of this passage. He's, you're responsible, God. It's never right to doubt God or accuse God or lie about his character, but we can all understand where this author is coming from, even if it kind of rubs us the wrong way. God is sovereign. His fingerprints are on everything. So whatever is happening to me, God is ultimately making that happen. And this can be a hard truth for all of us to believe. In some ways, this passage, it deals with the same questions that people have wrestled with for a long, long time. Questions like, where is God in my affliction? Where is God in the midst of pain and suffering? How can God be good, right, when he's taken away all of my peace and happiness and hope? I know God is for me. I know that. Romans 8, 31 I know God is for me, so why does it feel like he is against me? I certainly don't have full, clean, specific answers to those questions. Neither does the author here, and that's partly why he speaks like he does. He's saying God is the one who has done all of those things to me. Everything that's happened, he's behind it. And look again at verses 12 and 13. The author clearly believes that God isn't absent, but rather In this moment, as this author is speaking and writing, in this moment, he's speaking in a way that communicates he thinks that God is actively attacking him. God isn't just indifferent to this guy. He is actively against this guy. That's how how he feels. In this moment, his experience is telling him that God is actively hurting him, choosing to do him great harm. And this is one of those times where we as believers, we have to hold things in tension. We do this a lot. Let me give you some examples. We believe the truth of Psalm 119, verses 68, that God is good and he does good. We believe that. We rejoice in it. We lay our head on that at night. We believe the truth of Psalm 145, at 17, that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. We believe that. We grip it like our life depends on it. But then we also see other things that are actively telling us something different. We believe that God is good, and then he afflicts us. And this chapter 3 here that we see, verses 1 through 18, this is clearly a very deep level of suffering that he's going through. It's not like a paper cut, which is hurtful, but this is deeper than a paper cut. This is real affliction that he is feeling right now. So we believe that God is good, and then he afflicts us, maybe in some very deep ways. And when he afflicts us, oftentimes words like we see here in Lamentations pour out of us, or at least come inside of us. And then it becomes a battle, right, to believe what is true. We know this is to be true, but now we have to, we need grace to believe what we believe. We believe Nehemiah 8.10 that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We believe Psalm 144, 15, that blessed or happy are the people whose God is the Lord. God wants us to be glad in him. He commands us to be glad. But then he does things that lead us to forget what happiness even is. Rejoice in the Lord. I'm gonna do this thing that you 
You can't rejoice in anything now is how you feel. We believe Mark eleven twenty four when Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. We believe John 14, 14 when Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We believe this. God answers prayer. He uses prayer in our lives. We've prayed a lot in this service already. We'll pray, Lord willing, at the end of this sermon again. We'll pray once or twice at least before this service ends. We believe those things. But then sometimes our experience leads us to say things like what's here in verse 8. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. We say, God, I'm asking for help like you tell me to, so why aren't you helping me? Why are you ignoring me? Why are you rejecting what I'm saying? It reminds me of when something similar like this happens in school. So I'm a school teacher and I love my students, I do. But sometimes my students can really get on my nerves. And sometimes I'll be talking and a student will raise her hand and I know this student. I know how this student is. I know that she's most likely planning to make some inappropriate comment or say something to get us off task or ask to go to the bathroom for the eighth time because she's bored. So I say, put your hand down. I'm not even going to acknowledge what you're saying. I'll even do the same thing with the best students sometimes. If little Sally Mae has answered 12 times in a row, has had her hand up over and over again, they raise their hand for time number 13, I might say, uh, put your hand down. Let's hear from someone else. Right? I don't want to hear from you right now. Heard enough. I'll shut down that student too. Or just one more example. I do this a lot, as you can tell. Shut a lot of students down. I have a student raise his hand, and he'll ask for help on an assignment. But I'm having a bad day. I'm in a bad mood. And so what do I say? Put your hand down and figure it out. Right? I know I get paid to help you, but no, I'm not going to do that. Just leave me alone. Put your hand down. I'm not going to help you. Sometimes, this is how our relationship with God feels. That's how the author feels about God in verse 8. I pray, I cry for help, I ask for deliverance, and God shuts me down. Either he's not seeing my hand or he's telling me to put my hand down. He says, figure it out. Figure it out, buddy. He ignores me. He's tired of me. He's bothered by me. We have these thoughts. Ultimately, based on God's word, we know that these thoughts are not true. But our experience can tell us otherwise. For instance, how many of your prayers from last year went unanswered? How many prayers from the last 20 years have gone unanswered? Like I said, I promise, we'll get to some really encouraging stuff but affliction is real. Our thoughts and our feelings and experiences are real. It's important to address them. That's part of what we see in this passage here. The author is openly acknowledging his affliction. Again, he's essentially saying things like, if I had the choice to change things, then I would. God does have the choice to change things, but he doesn't. He's saying God is able to do whatever he wants. He's God. He's great. He's mighty. He's in control. He can do whatever he wants. He can change whatever he wants without breaking a sweat, but he is unwilling to do me any real good. He's not even willing to hear my prayers. He's unwilling to change anything. He's very willing to actively work against me and set me as his target. At least in part, that's what this guy is feeling. 
He's enduring a lot of suffering. God doesn't seem to be all that faithful right now. And if Lamentations 3 ended at verse 18, that would be tragic. It would be hopeless. It would make for a really discouraging sermon, to say the least. This guy's in the pit. He says, in some ways, that his belief is on life support. Barely hanging on. But let's look at where he goes next. So this is our last question. Number three, what is our hope in the midst of affliction? What is our hope in the midst of affliction? Let me first say where our hope should not and cannot be. First, our hope is not in ourselves because we are not God. Ultimately, we cannot change our affliction. We can't change our circumstances. Ultimately, God is sovereign. We're not. He's strong. We're not. He's good and perfect and sinless, and we're not. He's wise. We're usually not all that wise. So hoping in ourselves is futile and disappointing and even damning to hope in ourselves. And our hope is not in changing circumstances. We can ask for different circumstances. We can ask for affliction to stop. We all do that. I think it's good to do that. I think God cares about those things. But the reality is that our circumstances may not change. They may even go from bad to worse. Even if we hope in a positive outcome and it happens, there's a chance that things might go south again and then our faith is wrecked, if that's where our hope is. What we need in times of affliction and in times of abundance in every season is a hope that is capable and credible and constant. That's exactly what our author finds here. I I love that everything he says in verses 1 through 18 is is temporary. it's, It's not final. It's not the full picture. It's not ultimately the focus of what he thinks and feels and believes. It's there. It's present inside him. He's conflicted. It's like Justin has said before, I'm a riddle to myself, right? He's, he's conflicted. He has different thoughts about God and himself and his experience and everything. But it's like in chapter 3 here, he's saying, this is how I feel. This is how I've been afflicted. God has done this to me. God won't help me. And yet, that's where he goes in verse 21. We'll see that in just a moment. But first, think about what's, happened, what's happening in verse 19. So we saw earlier in verse 8 that God shuts out his prayers. That's what he says. God shuts out my prayers. But then look at verse 19. What does he do? He turns things into a prayer. He says, remember my affliction and my wonderings. So think about what's happening. Think about where his hope ultimately is. On the one hand, he basically says, why should I pray? God shuts out my prayers, so what's the point? But then what does he do in verse 19? He prays again. There's some really simple application for you. Keep praying. Whatever your affliction, whatever you feel about your affliction, whatever your feelings are about even the usefulness of something like prayer, keep praying. That's what he does. He goes from God shuts out my prayers to ultimately I'm going to say another prayer. God is good. He does good. He hears you. It's possible to start in a bad place or drift towards a bad place, but let's not get stuck there by God's grace. 
We want to remember who God is. We want to remember his faithfulness and his love. We want to go to him, not away from him in our affliction. This is exactly what the author does in verse 21. So he's gone on and on, just like we've been doing in the sermon, on and on about all of his suffering in the deepest possible way. He talks about how his pain is always before him. And even so, he says, verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So look at what's happening again. I, just, I love the contrast between verses 118 and verses 1 through 18 and 19 through 24. Verse 18, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Verse 18, he says, I don't have hope. I don't have any hope. Verse 21, I have hope. Anybody relate to that? He goes from no hope to hope. What changed? How did that happen? He calls something to mind. He says, I remember this, I think about this, and therefore, I have hope. I don't have any hope, but I call something to mind, and now I have hope. So what is it that he remembers? We see it in verses 22 through 24. He recalls truth about who God is. The character of God gives him good reason to hope in God. Verse 22, in spite of everything, through the good and the bad and the ugly, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You can just feel the, the encouragement and the hope almost leaping off the page at this point. His hope is as deep as his hopelessness just was. God is always loving. He remembers that. That's what he says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, regardless of what it looks like. God's love never stops. God is always loving. That's what Romans 5.8, for instance, tells us. God shows us his love for us. He actively demonstrates his love. God shows us his love right now. We're sitting in this room. We are having all kinds of good, bad thoughts, whatever. We're distracted. We have doubts, maybe, whatever it is. Right now in this room, we think, does God love us? I wish that he would show me if he loves me. Romans 5.8, God shows us his love for us right now in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. And he shows you that love today by what Christ did for you then and what he continues to do for you and for me. 1 John 3.16 is another one. This is how we know what love is. So we get a definition of love, and then we see that God practices that love and is love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Do you love me, God? He says, look to Jesus. That's, that's what we need to do. This author here, he fights the tragedy of his circumstances with the truth of God's character. And truth about God leads him to trust in God. The author here, he also might be remembering something like Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I think it's possible he's remembering something like that, at least that same truth. So we here today, we know that God loves us. We see it in Christ. 
Therefore, we have reason to hope and to trust and to rejoice. By remembering the love of God, the author is able to rest in God. He remembers, and that remembering leads to rest. Same thing is true for us. Paul, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8, he says very simply, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. He tells him to remember Jesus because by remembering Jesus, by remembering his gospel, we are able to find rest. We're able to find life and godliness in everything that we need. So no matter the affliction, we can rest in God. The author goes on in verse 22. He says, his mercies never come to an end. He's gone from life is miserable to God is merciful. He's not denying what's happening in his life but he's delighting in the character of God. He's gone from where he was to delighting in God. And that's, that's what we want to do by God's grace. Verse 23, he's trusting in the daily mercies of God and the great faithfulness of God because he has no other option. Where else is he going to turn? The mercy of God is all he has and the mercy of God is all he needs. One of the things that we see in this passage is the necessity, I think, of dwelling on God's faithfulness. It's good to recognize the the ways that God is really constantly faithful to his people in big ways, seemingly small ways, obvious ways, whatever it is. God was faithful in waking you up this morning. He was faithful in creating you in the first place. He was faithful in sending a promised redeemer He was faithful in giving his son Jesus to live and die in the place of sinners, in your place, in my place. He was faithful in raising Jesus from the dead, just like it was promised. He was faithful in giving you new life in Christ. He's faithful to send his spirit to dwell inside you and to help you. He's faithful to call you and justify you, sanctify you. Glorify you. He's faithful to use the church for good in your life. He's faithful to use suffering for your eternal good. He's faithful and true when he says things like 2 Corinthians 4 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's faithful. When I even think of words that we sang this morning. Things like, I know my pain will not be wasted. Christ completes his work in me. He's faithful to do that. He is faithful in every way, and he will be faithful in raising you from the dead to experience eternal joy and rest with him forever. And we could keep going. There's not enough time in all the world to recount all the ways that God is faithful to his people. But that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us trusting and resting in times of affliction, remembering the faithfulness of God in Christ. And let's even just, as we get ready to close in prayer, let's think just for a moment about even the affliction that Christ himself experienced. He was a man of affliction, like none of us have been or will be before. Christ was afflicted for our sins so that we could be adopted as sons of God. 
In the garden, Christ prayed. He prayed, not, not my will, but yours be done. He said, God, let this cup pass from me. That's what I want. God, can you, can you do anything about that? Father, in the garden he prayed, and his cry for help was met with silence. So he moves to not my will but yours be done. Jesus became a laughingstock and was mocked and taunted repeatedly as he was led to his death. Crown of thorns, purple rose. Here's Jesus, king of the Jews. He can save others, but he can't save himself. If you can, bring yourself down from the cross. He was mocked. He was a laughingstock among the people. He was ridiculed. He was reviled. He was insulted on his way to the cross for you and for me. He was a target of God's wrath and was crushed by it, not because of his own sin, but because of his love for sinners. Christ was afflicted so that we could be forgiven and set free. He has experienced Lamentations 3 in all its glory. Christ is our portion forever. He is our inheritance. He is ours forevermore. Again, as we sang earlier, he is our rest. He is our hope. New year, new me is fine, but new year, new mercies is a firm foundation for our lives. And hope in Christ is a solid rock for our lives today and this year and every year. Amen. Would you pray with me?